humans, hello humans, hello humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950, talking to you from the scenic bunker in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. How are you? I am thrilled to be back talking to you about idealists and idealism. I hope that your summer is going well. Um, it's hard to believe we're more than halfway through the summer. I don't even want to talk about that. We've got a new and an older show. The The older is an encore interview of Juliana Richardson, who is uh, um, the curator and the executive director of a nonprofit that records the histories of black pioneers, African-American pioneers in the business industry. That aired last summer. I think it's extremely timely right now, and that'll be our encore interview. And uh, July is a tough month for me to be getting guests, but I'm working on it. In my C block, I'm going to share about a mistake I made, but hopefully we'll learn from. But here in my A block, I need to start with an apology, which is I'm going to talk about the great John Lewis, who we just lost. The apology is that through two and a half years of this show of LE 2.0 radio, I can't believe that I haven't previously talked about John Lewis. In fact, I was certain that I had featured him uh, <laughs> because he's such an important idealist, uh, but my list of shows tells me otherwise. And of course, this show is taped, and you'll be getting this nearly two weeks after Congressman Lewis's passing. Last week uh, was a week of him laying in state at the Capitol and then celebrations of his life and his ultimate funeral. So in uh, barely 10 minutes, let me share what I can about this truly remarkable man, truly, truly remarkable American. I'm going to really just only focus on his early years because that's, I, I think, a, a gap that many people don't understand. John Lewis was born in February 1940 in Troy, Alabama, to parents who were sharecroppers. And you may recall that sharecropping was one of the forms of Jim Crow to hold down African Americans. John was the third of ten children in the family. Rumor has it, uh, John so aspired to a, be a, a preacher that he was preaching to the family's chickens at age five. Um, until he was six, he had only seen two white-colored people in his entire life. So you can imagine what side of the tracks he and his family lived on in Troy. I know that they were out in the country, but you get an idea. As he got older, he would go into town and understand the true effects of Jim Crow and segregation. You may recall his video clip of him talking about being, very emotionally, talking about being unable to check out books from the public library because the library only served white-colored people. John came to understand even more about inequity. He had an uncle who lived in Buffalo, New York. Uh, presumably, the uncle had gone to Buffalo as part of the Great Migration. And when John visited Buffalo, he saw what integration, relatively, that's a relative phrase at the time, looked like in Buffalo. So at an early age, John Lewis came to understand inequity. Um, he also came to understand that he was going to serve God. And so uh, um, on top of that, John was also astute about the budding civil rights movement. At age 15, he heard Dr. King on the radio for the first time. And then he followed what was going on in Montgomery, Alabama, um, when the bus, bus boycott was happening. 
At age 17, John Lewis met Rosa Parks, and then a year later, at 18, he met Dr. King. Um, after John graduated from high school, he traveled to Nashville uh, for college. He first attended a gradu- um, a, and graduated from a Baptist seminary, and then he went to Fisk University, an historically black college in Nashville. And it was in Nashville where John became politically active, and along with others, he attempted to segregate downtown lunch counters with sit-ins, and then he worked to organize bus boycotts and voter registration. It was in downtown Nashville where John was first arrested. Um, by the time that he, John was just 23 years old, John Lewis would go on to be arrested more than 20 times. Can you believe that? While at Fisk, um, it was uh, when at Fisk that John Lewis coined the phrase, good trouble, necessary trouble, a phrase that we've heard quite a bit in the last couple of weeks since his passing. In 1961, so now remember, in 61, John Lewis is only 21 years old. He became one of the original 13 Freedom Riders to test a Supreme Court decision that ruled that segregation in interstate passenger travel was illegal. Remember, again, only 21 years old. On one ride, he waiting area, and two white-color men beat him. Another ride, two weeks later, he was beaten in Birmingham and then arrested, of course, and then taken to the state line, uh, the Tennessee state line, by the police and dropped off, told not to come back to Alabama. Of course, John Lewis then got on another bus, and he made it as far as Montgomery, Alabama, where he and others were again beaten. This time, John Lewis was hit in the head with a wooden crate and left unconscious on the floor of the Greyhound bus terminal in downtown Montgomery. But John Lewis didn't give up. (laughs) He took yet another freedom ride and ended up in Mississippi, where he was arrested, and then imprisoned for 40 days. At age 23, oh, 23, okay, it's 1963, John Lewis was heading SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And doing this, he was launching voter registration initiatives throughout Mississippi. John Lewis, by age 23, was so notable and so promising for the civil rights movement that he was selected to be one of the six major organizers for the August 1963 March on Washington. That is the march, that is the place where Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech. 23, okay, so he is the youngest of what were called um, the big six, six organizers of the march. John Lewis wrote his own speech. He would, they said that he could talk at the March on Washington. But John Lewis was very passionate, as we know, not only in young life, but certainly in later life. We could see that all the way, literally up until the time he had leave Congress because of his cancer. And so he wrote this speech for the March on Washington that was um, considered too uh, volatile. Um, And in that speech, uh, his original speech, he had He was telling the Kennedy administration that their 1963 civil rights bill was, quote, too little, too late. The march organizers did not want to anger the Kennedy administration. So in a space uh, back to the side of the Lincoln Memorial, someone had a typewriter and they rewrote John Lewis's speech. And John Lewis, 
smartly went along with it. He gave down the watered, the gave the watered down version of the speech. And then, as we all know as a country, a year and a half later on March 7, 1965, in Selma, Alabama, John Lewis was one of 600 marchers who, upon crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge, were attacked by Alabama state troopers with batons, troopers on horses, and with attack dogs. In that horrible incident, John Lewis's skull was fractured, but somehow John Lewis was able to stand, get back to his feet, walk across uh, the Edmund Pettus Bridge to a safe place, um, and, and get to a hospital. If you've seen pictures of John Lewis as an older man, you could see the scars on top of his head. Those were the scars from the police baton at Selma. So there you have it, the early life, the early years of John Lewis's life when his idealistic spirit was being formed and shaped. We know that he went on, of course, to become uh, a congressman representing the northern or three-quarters of, of uh, Atlanta. He served a total, I think, of 16 terms. And, of course, he became known as the conscience of the Congress. John Lewis's story, particularly the early part that I just related to you, is an incredible story of courage, persistence, and grit. It's a story of an idealist who came into his own simply as a youth because he paid attention to what was going on. He was not um, shy. I mean, to make it a point that you were going to go meet Rosa Parks when you were 17 and then Dr. King when you were 18 and then and then to ingratiate yourself into a civil rights movement whereas within 5 years of meeting Dr. King you are speaking at the march on Washington shows the incredible energy of this idealist he was a pusher he was someone who was not ever going to be satisfied with no. <laughs> Truly, John Lewis was an American hero worthy of all the accolades we've been hearing now. Think of him and think of how we need more leaders like him now. Okay, coming up will be the big interview. It's an encore interview with Juliana Richardson, the creator of History Makers, which documents African-American pioneers in the business world. That aired last August. If you like what you hear on the show, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail. I love hearing from my listeners. We'll be back in a minute. Thanks.
Branding electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. If you're looking to save money on your home or building improvement project, check out Better Futures Minnesota's reuse retail warehouse in South Minneapolis. We carry salvage building materials such as cabinetry, flooring, plumbing fixtures, appliances, lighting, and more, saving you money and saving the planet by keeping these items out of the landfill, by giving them another life. Selections change daily, and we also take donations. Go to betterfuturesminnesota.com and look under Reuse Warehouse to learn more. Let us know AM950 sent you. And we're back on AM950, Ellie Krug here, Ellie 2.0 Radio. We have on the line with us Juliana Richardson from The History Makers, a nonprofit that um, I'm going to have her explain to you further about in a second. But let me just tell you a little bit about Juliana. She is a graduate of Brandeis University out in Boston, as well as a graduate of Harvard Law School. She's got impeccable uh, pedigree right there. Um, But she is also very notable for a variety of things. She was awarded the 2014 Legacy Award from Black Enterprise Magazine and was profiled in 2014's American Masters, The Boomer List, which is a PBS documentary, um, and exhibit at the museum in Washington, D.C. Juliana, are you on the line with us? Yes, I am. Hi, Ellie. So nice to be with you. Oh, well, welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio. And I'm just thrilled to have you. Um, We should probably give the audience just a little bit of background how we know each other. You and I... Uh, we're on a panel a couple of months ago at a major, major law firm in downtown Chicago. We had never met each other before. That's um, fine. But we were on this panel talking about diversity and inclusion along with a couple of other very big heavyweights. Me, I was a little lightweight. No, um, that's not true, Ellie. <laughs> and and um, but, but you and I uh, kind of clicked. But most of all, I saw you as you spoke. I saw that you were an idealist. Actually, everyone on that panel was an idealist. But I, I wanted to grab you. So welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. Juliana, let's just get it out of the way. You're the executive director of the History Makers. I talked very briefly about that um, in the first segment, talking about Ed Dwight. Can you tell us what is the History Makers? How did it come about? And uh, just please, plug plug it the heck. <laughs> okay. Well, I also want to, I mean, we, we've grown to be the nation's largest African-American video oral history archive. And so we interview black people about their lives. And the significance of what we're doing is that there's only been once in the history of the United States that there's been a massive attempt to record the black experience by the first voice. And that was with the WPA slave narrative. So that represents 19th century history. But there had been no attempt to record 20th century history. Um, and so we wanted, to, we wanted to make that our mission. And I say 20th, and as we move forward now, we're in the 21st century. <clears throat> so that, that's the purpose of the project. And so we um, 
we were very, I would say, at the beginning, I did not know as much about the Spielberg Shoah Foundation. But Steven Spielberg, after he did Schindler's List, decided that he was going to record the first-person narratives of Holocaust survivors, the living and willing. Um, he did 52,000 interviews in five years. Holy so cow, okay. Was, <laughs> so my name wasn't Steven Spielberg or Oprah Winfrey, but I had it as our desire uh, for lots of reasons that I could discuss of this history, not go by, by the wayside. Yep. And, you know, you mentioned Ed White. I remember I didn't interview him, but we had actually arrived in um, in Denver, and he had been on our list, but he had not responded to our, our calls. This is in the early years of the project. And we, um, so we worked to interview a, a very famous theologian and civil rights activist named Dr. Vincent Harding, who has since passed away. Um, but he had forgotten that we were there and was out of town. So we reach, we reach Ed White. And um, and so I came and the, the 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 staff had set up and the interview was in progress and it, it rained like rain like cats and dogs but everything was quiet and there he was in the interview and I just witnessed the most amazing amazing interview um, and really have gotten to know Ed White and he was the first. Um, person to be trained as an astronaut. Right. Um, it was under yeah. the Kennedy administration, I'm sure. He told your viewers, but we're just just pleased to have him. And he's an amazing sculptor to be sitting in his his uh, studio that's a, a former airport hangar and surrounded by all this artwork and his creativity and hearing his story was just amazing. So we've done, um, we've done actually, Ellie, we've done um, over 3,200 interviews wow. and, in 413 cities and towns across the United States and have even traveled to Norway and to Mexico and the Caribbean. Uh, Norway, we interviewed Ann Brown, who was the first best and poor and best on Broadway, who had moved to um, moved there in the 1940s and, and married an Olympic ski champion. And then in Mexico, uh, we interviewed the famous sculptor Elizabeth Catlett, who has since you know, passed away. And then in the Caribbean, we interviewed a Trans-Africa uh, fellow lawyer, but the founder of Trans-Africa, Randall Robinson. Okay. And so we, um, we, we've, uh, the collection is 10,000 hours of testimony. Um, the oldest person interviewed in the collection was a woman named Louisiana Hines, who was a, a World War II Rosie the Riveter. Okay. Um, and she was 104 at the time of interview, 109 at the time of her death. And then the youngest um, is uh, a prima ballerina uh, named Aisha McMillan, who now uh, teaches and works in, in North Carolina. Um, the other thing about the collection and the significance is that there just has not been a lot of recording. And a lot of our content in the collection is, you know, one-of-a-kind content. And, and as each day passes... Um, uh, that we become woefully more aware of that um, because uh, up to this point, about 680 of our history makers have passed away. And, um, and then, and most of them um, 
never been featured in a biography or had an autobiography written about them. Um, and this remains the only, you know, major account of their lives. So, and, so and, the, um, sorry, go ahead. I, go on. Well, I was just going to relay for the listeners that I, when I, we were in Chicago on the panel, you, you showed a video of several different interviews. And really what my takeaway from it was is that it was a lot of um, all black colored humans who were talking about what it, what it has been like to live in a country where whiteness is, you know, the uh, the supremacy of, of the of the society, and I um, I didn't say that very accurately, but but my takeaway was that these were humans talking about what it was like to be them, and I thought that that was just the most important, fascinating thing that anyone could could have. Am I that's, wrong on that? That's right. That's right. Um, that is, um, that's exactly right. Um, there's a lot of uh, sense, and what struck me about doing that video um, that day and going into the collection, because we have not spent a lot of time using the collection ourselves, and what struck me is, you know, we were talking about diversity and people's experience and, not, you know, lawyers' experience in non-diverse places like corporations and law firms. And the, the diversity of the story and the passion which people spoke, um, there was Demetrius Carney saying that, you know, he, ha he actually had, had his own black law firm, very successful law firm at the time. And then he um, comes in and um, he's, you know, he goes in to see, you know, his, I guess, a gathering. And he, and he talks about, going back into his office and put, you know, putting his head in his hands because he saw a sea of whiteness and what that meant, you know, and, and, um, and thinking, okay, I've made this big mistake. Um, and so I think that, you know, but it's a passion which people are telling the stories and that, that resonates over and over again. I mean, we have so many stories, so many things that, are not necessarily um, top of mind, you know, when people think of the black experience. And, you know, and that's why your comments, Allie, also resonated uh, with me. Um, because, you know, you talked about being other, you know, yeah. and, um, and that is what, and why it resonated with me, because I felt other, and for the most part of my life. Yeah. And so that was, but to hear someone who has a different experience, but also, you know, who actually had experience as the person, you know, in society, and then grew to be an other. And I, th I found it to be very profound. Well, thank you. Juliana, we're going to have to take a break right now, but we'll come back. Um, and we want to talk more with you. Uh, listeners, we've been speaking with uh, Juliana Richardson, who's the executive director of The History Makers. Uh, I'll get her to give you the website when we come back for the segment afterwards. Um, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on AM 950. We'll be back in a minute. Thanks. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works, LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming, diverse humans. 
Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Hi, Alex of Better Futures, Minnesota. Does your business or organization need janitorial services, lawn care, or snow services? Obtain a free, no-obligation estimate from Better Futures Minnesota when you mention that you heard about us on AM950. Our supervised, hardworking, and affordable crews will handle your interior and exterior building and property maintenance needs while you help men in your community transform their lives and walk on a positive path to success. It's a win-win. To learn more, go to betterfuturesminnesota.com under business services. And we're back on AM 950. Ellie Krug here with Ellie 2.0 Radio. Um, listeners, we've been speaking with Juliana Richardson, who is the executive director as well as the founder of the History Makers. Juliana, before we forget, let, will you give my listeners um, the uh, website address for the History Makers? Sure. Our website address is www.thehistorymakers. That's plural S on both sides, uh, .org. So www.thehistorymakers.org. And our phone number also is 312-674-1900. Great, great. And, and listeners, they have a, a great website, for example. All you have to do is go, and if you want to know about somebody who is black-colored, who is in America, whether their biography is there, they've got a, they have a, a table of contents where you can go, and then you can just do a search. So if you want to see that Ed Dwight video, all you have to do is just Google in or type in Ed Dwight into the search box, and you'll get that phenomenal video uh, uh, interview. Juliana, um, let's talk uh, a little bit about you, okay? Um, yes. Because, you know, the, it, it was, as I said, sitting in the panel a couple of months ago in Chicago where you and I were on that panel, it was very clear to me that you're an idealist. Now, you, you're here. You did not get to running a nonprofit, particularly a non nonprofit breaking the kind of ground that the history makers is breaking, you didn't get here directly. You started out the traditional path going to law school and trying to be a lawyer. Do I have that right? That's absolutely right. Um, I, I would say, um, though there's a little backstory to that, in that I, um, my, I really wanted a career in theater, and that was not my, my father's dream for me. He always wanted to be a lawyer. So in law school, I was always, always looking for non-traditional things for lawyers to do, but, you know, became, went on that path at the beginning and decided pretty early that, well, it was just my experience in the law firm, you know, my, my skill sets were being challenged. And so I was like, well, I didn't want to be a lawyer in the first place. So I have a pretty eclectic background after I left uh, Jenner and Block. I, um, I went with the city and became the, um, a cable, the cable administrator for the city when they were franchising. And then that went um, I left there and politics sent me out and then I was doing a little consulting and then started a home shopping channel, which these days people come to break, start going screech. You know, <laughs> on that. 
right? Especially in academic circles. When I talk to people, they're like, whoa. And then, um, and then, um, you know, I lost my shirt on my home shopping channel, was managing several cable channels. And then the city took over those channels. And that left me at sitting at my dining room table, really confused for the first time in my life about what would be my life's path. I mean, very confused. And I was one who never had a five-year plan. So, you know, being a little flexible and, you know, you know, and maybe artistic in my approach uh, was fine, but this was not fine at that point. I was just not, you know, I couldn't go back to a law firm at that time. There wasn't really jobs in cable television. How old, for me how, old, at that time. How, old how old were you at that point? I was in my mid 40s. Okay. And, right. and Allie. And the, and the other thing is that several of my friends at that time, that was the time during HIV, had died of AIDS. And, and I just, you know, the thing is, is I was really thinking, I didn't have children. I started to think about what my legacy would be, what would be my leap mm. behind. That became increasingly mm. important to me. What what would I what would what would it say that I had come and been on this earth? Right. And and so I that's what I started to think about. And so I found my leap behind. Um, you know, but it was I'm telling I found my leap behind because Actually, a friend of mine had, be, had gotten a job as the cable television bureau, and I and she was saying maybe she would hire me. And so I'm thinking, because my parents are like, where is your job? You're a Harvard-trained lawyer. You need to have a job. And I, um, but I had been also looking at this this possibility. Um, the possibility of something of, like the history makers. Of, of the something like yep. the history makers, because I had actually, um, what happened is I, my mother gave me a trip to, to Memphis and to visit my sister, but there was also the National Bar Association Conference, and I had been there. And at that time, Clarence Thomas had just been appointed, and Judge Leon Higginbotham, who I loved and adored, was railing against him. And during that, so this idea is percolating in my head. I don't even know about the Spielberg Shaw Foundation at this point, but it's percolating in my head. And I would talk to people about it, but they get a little, you know, like crazy. Look, because I had done oral histories as a young college student, and I remember it like it was yesterday because I was in New York Schomburg's library, and I'm listening time just wild about Harry and realizing for the first time that it was written by a black songwriting team of Noble Sissel and U.B. Blake in the 1921 production of Shuffle Along on Broadway. And... The fact that that, because I grew up in a, a little town um, called Newark, Ohio, which there were only a thousand blacks out of 50,000 whites. And so the teacher had asked us back then when I was nine years old to talk about who our, you know, who was our family background. And literally everybody said they were part German, part Italian, part French. And I was like, who was I? And I lied. I said I was, you know, Negro. I don't even think I would have said African. And I, you know, I said I was um, Native American because most black people think they have Native American. And then I added in French because everybody had all these eclectic backgrounds. And so that feeling, I felt like the teacher knew I had lied. And mm. that feeling of not knowing stayed with me until I was in that day in New York Schomburg's library listening. I'm just wild about Harry. And, and 
I like I found myself. That's all I can say. Oh. I found myself that day. And I took oh. my little tape recorder around the streets of Harlem. I was staying at a apartment of a, a friend of my father's very serious about my research and i interviewed butterfly mcqueen who was starred and gone with the wind miss charlotte she was speaking with that little tinny voice you know she was working up in harlem had no money at that point though she had made five thousand dollars a week and gone with the wind but that had been her one moment in the sun and then you know lee whipper who was the oldest living black actor at the time and tap dancer honey coles and and uh historian john henry clark all those interviews were being poured into me and it had to have had a profound impact on me to be in my 40s with no job and decide that's what I want to do. Well, and then you went and I mean, you you single-handedly, of course you have a board of directors now, but you single-handedly um, conceived of the idea of the history makers and then you went out and fundraised. I mean, what you yes. I think you said you you had a you got 11 million dollars to get the history makers off the ground and go do all these interviews, these no, oral I histories? Wish, no, no, it wasn't like that. We raised, uh, no, we've raised money. We've raised a total of 30, like maybe $35 million to okay. date. That, but, but we, that's but a lot we, of money. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of money, but it's been raised by a lot of effort. I probably, you know, have worked, you know, seven days oh, a week sure. for the last almost 19 years. But... I feel that, you know, I, I I had to have lived a passionate life. I mean, I talk about that all the time. You know, I, life for me, a nine to five was never going, was never in my DNA. I needed to make <laughs> something happen. And while the fundraising, though it sounds like a lot of money in archival circles, you know, people refer to me as entrepreneurial. But we we were not grant funded, so I had to figure out a way through event fundraising to really raise the money for the initiative. But the thing is, is that archives, they, they, they sound old and dusty, but I wanted to have something that was a, a now a neat archive. Our archive is a digital archive. Yep. It's, it's now housed permanently at the Library of Congress. Oh, my goodness. Um, yep. It gives voice to people whose voices would have been, you know, silence. And and I just, you know, and, and it's been a pleasure to the extent for the interviews that I have done to sit down with people for three to six hours at a time, you know, and have people pour their stories back into us. You learn so much. Well, and I think and, that the thing that struck me when you were talking earlier is that these are folks who, whose stories would otherwise never have been told, that's right. you know, and who, whom we would never know. And, you know, and this goes back to, uh, you know, my idea that we're all attempting to survive the human condition, regardless of the color of our skins or who we love or, or any of those other silly things that we use to distinguish each other. Juliana, let me, I mean, your dad was a lawyer. Um, no, and, my father wasn't a lawyer. Oh, he I'm sorry. He wanted to be he a lawyer. He wanted to be a lawyer. Sorry about and that. And he would have, he had it been another time, he would have been a great lawyer. Oh, sure. I, mm -hmm. So tell me, I mean, what, what gets you, what, we've got two minutes left. What keeps you ticking as an idealist? What, I mean, we, we both know it's a tough time to be an idealist in America. So what, what keeps you going? What keeps me going is that I really believe that we're in a moment of time, a moment of time that is for lots of us a very scary time. You know, but I used to think, 
that, you know, I remember thinking about the Holocaust and thinking, like, could the Germans have been, how could they have let that happen? But we see in the current time how that could be. But I, I spend a lot of time in the archives. I mean, I, and, and I just think that the human spirit is a resilient one <laughs> and that we will overcome this um, and that we should look from a historical lens always to learn about what we should do for the present and the future. Well, you, know. you and I have in common the idea that humans are resilient. I actually happen to believe that almost all humans have good, empathetic hearts. It's just that we are so afraid. That's, That's all. That's right. That's right. Well, That's right. Well, Juliana, I just, um, I just want you to know, um, I, I so respect you for what you have done. I mean, uh, listeners, in the nonprofit world, to create something out of nothing— and then to get it housed in the Library of Congress is like climbing Mount Everest in, uh, you know, running shorts and, and with a T-shirt. I mean, Juliana, you have done really an incredible job and a wonderful service to our, to our country um, with creating the history makers and without and with going and speaking and being who you are and and sharing what you have on this show, so I just want to tell you, I am so appreciative of that. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you for the opportunity to shine a light on our work, and thank you also for the life that you have lived. Oh well, or living. You're welcome. You're welcome. So give us the website one last time. It is. It's www.thehistorymakers.org. And we have our digital archive now that makes everything that's in the Library of Congress accessible um, online. Okay, so, via your website, right? Via our website, Okay, yes. well, that's great. Well, Juliana, thank you for being on LE 2.0 Radio. Um, I wish you the best of luck. Listeners, we've been speaking with Juliana Richardson, the founder and executive director of the History Makers. Go to her website. Make sure Go check it out. And... Um, and by the way, if you like what this show is, uh, please visit my website at elliekrug.com. Um, follow me on Twitter at Ellie Krug. We'll be back in a minute. Thanks. Did you know there's deconstruction funding available now for homeowners and contractors in Hennepin County? If you are embarking on a remodel or teardown this year, consider hiring Better Futures Minnesota's deconstruction crews instead of demolition. By taking a house or building apart by hand instead of destroying it with heavy equipment, the materials can be reused or recycled instead of going into the landfill. It is much more cost-effective and is a carbon-neutral solution. Go to BetterFuturesMinnesota.com and look under Business Services to learn more. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. And we're back on AM 950 LE 2.0 Radio. Hey. Okay. 
my C block. This is where I talk about my work. Um, and although I train uh, and speak on diversity and inclusion, many of you know that I am, by training and education and experience, a civil trial lawyer. In fact, I did that for nearly 30 years. And I've got to tell you, way back in 1979, when I first started law school, I mean literally, like from the very first day of starting law school, one of the things you consistently heard was, never ask a question in a courtroom where you don't know what the answer will be. Never, ever do that. Boy, that was drilled into us. And so, um, of course, on one of my very first trials, um, what do I do? (laughs) Um, I ask a question uh, for uh, I ask a question where I don't know what where I I think I know what the uh, answer is going to be, but I wasn't absolutely sure, and I had not pinned down um, the witness on what the answer would be. And you know what? I got an answer that I did not expect. It was such a bad answer for my client that right next to me, a female juror in the jury box gasped out loud. The answer was that bad for my client. But you know what? I learned from that mistake and never never made that mistake ever again in a courtroom. And eventually I went on to become a pretty good lawyer, trial lawyer with a batting average about 700. I tell you this because last week, me now in the role of a diversity inclusion trainer, I made a mistake in a training. Um, It was a training around white fragility, educating white colored people and others about our white-color-dominated society. Uh, The question was one in which I failed to acknowledge how the the words by the question asker, which the person asking the question had good intent, but some of what they said was painful to African-Americans who were in the audience. And you know what? Um, I failed to acknowledge that. All I needed to do was to acknowledge, I wonder how uh, people of other than the white-color skin felt about what you just said. Um, I, that's all I really needed to do, but I did not do it. And frankly, I didn't realize my mistake until someone, an African-American person from the audience, emailed me afterwards in a very professional way, but certainly with emotion about my failure to engage in what's called allyship. So it turns out I'm going to go back to that client where I made the mistake. I'm going to go back and we're going to do another talk um, about how I will own that mistake. I absolutely will own it. It was my mistake. And then have a larger conversation about how we're going to be, what it takes to be allies for marginalized people from marginalized communities. Um, What it takes if we're actually really going to have real change that sticks and if what it's going to take if we're going to deconstruct white supremacy. The reality is, is that if we're going to do all of that, white color people like me are going to make mistakes. It is inevitable. Even the trainers are going to make mistakes. And this, of course, highlights the need for us to understand the role of apology and forgiveness. Um, We as a society, for the most part, get apology, but we are very, very difficult when it comes to forgiveness. And so um, that's something I will talk about uh, when I redo this training in a couple of days and when I go back to the audience and the client. And then at the same time, I'm going to talk about grace, not the religious kind, but grace in the sense of 
you know, um, we all need to give each other a break here as we're trying to navigate what is very difficult because the alternative is what we do is we run away. That's the alternative. Oh, this is too complicated. This is too bumpy. This is, this is making me way, way too uncomfortable. I'm just not going to engage. I'm going to run away. I'm going to hide. That is what we have been doing as a society as we've been trying to change things. And frankly, we can't do that anymore because it doesn't work. It, it's not working. And so we have to sit in with the unbumpiness. We have to sit in with the, the stuff that just really is so uncomfortable. But I think that we also need to give each other the grace to understand, okay, okay, we're, we're going to give you grace to make the mistakes. And, and we're going to give you grace to, to maybe be you know, unhappy with something that I just said. Uh, it, it's a two, grace is a two-way street. And I know that people of color have been giving all kinds of patience for all kinds of decades and centuries. And it's rough for some to hear about the word grace, but it's necessary. That's where it comes in for me to be a leader, to try and press that it's still necessary for people of color to give us one more shot, one more dose of grace to get it right. Um, so just like the lesson that I learned as a trial lawyer about asking a question you don't know the answer to, I too will learn from this, and I will become a better trainer and speaker for it. That is the key, after all, learning from our mistakes. The problem is when we don't learn, and we simply keep repeating the same mistake over and over. We've got to stop doing that, everyone. Okay, well, another show under my belt. Uh, Big thanks to um, my sponsor, Better Futures Minnesota. I've got another sponsor coming online very soon, which I'm really thrilled about. Um, Please uh, uh, get to know what Better Futures does. It gives people a second chance. A big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. Brett, you always rock. And a big thanks to you, my audience, for coming in and tuning in every week. Uh, uh, Soon, I think, maybe a change in the lineup here about when you're going to be hearing me during the week, but stay tuned. We'll come to that. And most of all, will you go out and will you go out and change the world? One small way this week coming up. It doesn't have to be major, but go and try and change it, okay? All right. Thanks so very much. I look forward to talking to you next week. Go out. Have a great week. Bye-bye, everyone.